Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. From North Carolina State University comes a new study about a compound found in foods can inhibit a key SARS-CoV-2 enzyme. That's good news. What it's looking at is it's looking at green tea, muscadine grapes, and dark chocolate that can bind to and block the function of a particular enzyme, or protease, in the SARS-2 COVID virus. And that is important because proteases are important to the health and vi viability of cells and viruses. That's according to a, a professor of plant and mi microbiological biology at North Carolina State University. So if you can inhibit these proteases, cells cannot perform many important functions like replication. Here's what he says, quote, one of our lab's focus is to find nutraceuticals in food or medicinal plants that inhibit either how a virus attaches to human cells or the propagation of a virus in human cells. Okay, and they did that. And they found that that the SARS-2 virus reacted when confronted with a number of different plant chemical compounds already known for their potent anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties. And the top of the list was green tea and cacao or chocolate. So shouldn't we be giving all of the nursing home, assisted living center, hospice care people, hospital patients, green tea? unless there's a medical reason otherwise, or chocolate. That would help them. Now, vitamin D at high doses, I'm talking about 50,000 units, if you're in a hospital, can make a huge difference. We're not doing any of this. You see, the problem is once you are sick, there's about a one week or long, maybe seven, eight days before you get sick enough to go into hospital. By that time, the virus is already in your upper respiratory tract system, and that's where it gets dangerous. So right now we're telling, well, wash your hands and stay isolated. Yeah, and exactly how's that supposed to help you when the virus is already in your body? That's why we have a completely misguided approach. Now, is this not already proven by the scientific literature on the government's own PubMed website in tens of thousands of articles on vitamin A, vitamin C, on zinc and selenium and uh, vitamin D and uh, herbs like astragalus? Yeah, it is. It's already there. So why aren't the people of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease telling people to take this, not just for SARS, but for the normal every year flu that leads to pneumonia. Influence and pneumonia are two different things, but because pneumonia generally has a bacterial component, but people really die more from pneumonia. Well, this would be helping those people. And we're doing nothing, not a single thing. The one drug that could help people, we have, in effect, outlawed in the United States and attacked doctors using it. Well, then that must mean those doctors are quacks and charlatans and frauds and should be disbarred as quickly as possible. If you're advocating a therapy that you should know doesn't work, 
Oh, but unfortunately, it's just the opposite. That these doctors using it are using it because it does work. The scientific peer-reviewed literature proves it works. There's not just a few studies. There's over 177 studies. The vast majority showing that it works at low potency, especially in the first seven days, you can stop it in the vast majority of cases. You kill the virus. You protect the person. And you lessen the amount of people going into hospital where there's a higher probability of them getting more advanced in their disease and dying. So wouldn't it make sense then to advocate this and make it available at the national level? Of course it would. But they're not going to because it's been weaponized, because it was politicized. Why was it politicized? Well, everything against Trump. When Trump said he used hydroxychloroquine in combination, they immediately attacked it. They even uh, had fraudulent articles published. And they've got these spokespersons running around the country saying, oh, it's terrible, there's not a single study. I actually have the evidence, and I believe that perjury charges should be brought against this person. This is a Harvard professor saying there's not a single study that justifies this, and it's dangerous. And he's citing a study that was retracted. How do we know? Because I spent four hours yesterday reviewing twice a two-hour and ten-minute Senate hearing that nobody was at. Oh, except it was very partisan in that the Democrat asking the question chose not to ask a single relevant question and condemned hydroxychloroquine or any other person or substance that would challenge Anthony Fauci's official approach. Well, who were the people who testified? Some of the greatest scientists in the world, some of the most acknowledged scientists, some of the most credentialed scientists, 50-year professor from Harvard University, medical doctor, cardiologist. And he put his reputation, he said, this works. But don't take my word for it. We're going to play you the clips today. The second half of our program is just that. Under oath, testifying about the benefits of hydroxychloroquine, this will hopefully, even for the most closed-minded, resistant-minded person, allow you to know what I've been saying all along. You have been played by Anthony Fauci, by Donald Trump, by the CDC, the FDA, the entire medical-industrial complex, whether they want one vaccine over another, one drug over another. They want you tested. They want you vaccinated. They're just not doing anything except washing your hands and wearing a mask to prevent any kind of virus. Everything that they're saying is absolutely the opposite of what it should be. Oh, and Anthony Fauci on Sunday finally acknowledged, yeah, yeah, your kids are okay to back to school, young kids in particular. The science doesn't show that they're going to are spreaders. Mm-hmm. The trouble is there were five peer-reviewed studies published in the spring that showed that. So if the studies and science were already there that children should be allowed to go back to school, then why did we close down all the schools? Oh, and by the way, there were over 400 children who committed suicide because of being isolated, no contact with other children. Oh, and those who did take classes in some districts, over 70% got Fs 
and the majority didn't even take a class at all. And a commentary, because I believe that we have been completely played. I believe that everything that is happening now is intentional. Uh, and by the way, I'll be... We found the footage in my archive of the man who invented the PCR test, Professor Kerry Mullis, and he won the Nobel Prize in chemistry for it. And he did not want this test being used to detect viral uh, viruses or to determine that you have a disease because it shows a part, piece of a particle in your bloodstream. Who better to be the expert on how this should be used than the person who invented the and, and worked on this. All right, that's that's what this is about. So we, we have all this information. We, we have all the evidence. We have all the truths. It's just that unfortunately, uh, the media and corporate America has everything else. So today from Robert Freeman, from Common Dreams, the economy isn't working. That's exactly the plan. I will incorporate my own thoughts along with Robert Freeman's. I've written a commentary on it because I want you to see where this is going. And let me explain this. It's not going to go well. If you think you've had problems and there's been crisis and one out every six families in America is food uh, short and insecure, and this isn't anything compared to what you're about to face in the next year, economically. All that on today's show. And as I mentioned, um, green tea, start taking it now. Two to three glasses of decaffeinated a day would be good. But from Kaifeng Hospital of Traditional Chinese Medicine comes a study about soy isoflavin. Genistein, G-E-N-I-S-T-E-I-N, genistein. It shows promise against non-small cell lung cancer progression. That's important. So just write it down. Soy, ISO, ISO, flavon, F-L-A-V-O-N-E, genistein, G-E-N-I-S-T-E-I-N, for small cell lung cancer. Why not use it preventatively also? Then we have an extract from garlic, white onion, and purple onion, inhibits the effect against enzymes linked to diabetes and hypertension. This is from the Federal University of Technology in Nigeria. So this was published in the Journal of Dietary Supplements, and it shows that there's an aqueous, which means a water-based extract, where they have garlic, like liquid garlic, and white onion, and purple onion, on the activity of angiostin-converting enzyme, or ACE, and amylase and in vitro, what it means is that when you take this extract of garlic, white onion, and purple onion, it can help and inhibit enzymes that can contribute to diabetes and high blood pressure. So let's say that you just want to do this yourself. Well, you take one teaspoon of liquid garlic. You can buy it or you can go ahead and juice it yourself. You get a white onion and you juice one teaspoon of that, and purple onion, the same. And you just drink it down. I would suggest put it in a smoothie so it's not so astringent, but that could help you. We know already that garlic can lower blood pressure, but that means it can also prevent it. 
For those of you who are diabetic, and we have almost 100 million pre-diabetic and diabetic, according to the Australian Catholic University, quick bursts of exercise can help your heart if you're diabetic. Frequent short exercise sessions may be better for diabetic patients' blood vessels than longer, lower workouts, and that can reduce the risk of heart disease. That's good news. That's simple. Because people with type 2 diabetes are at an increased risk of heart disease and reduced vascular, that's your blood vessel, function. So, and this was published in the American Journal of Physiology, Heart and Circulatory Physiology. And finally, one more good study on green tea from the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. Green tea has a chemical in it called EGCG. And this EGCG impairs uh, bone loss in rats with experimental periodontal disease. So take your green tea and effect protect yourself if you have periodontal conditions and osteoporosis conditions. So both are good, and green tea can help with both. Tomorrow I'm going to talk about how exercise benefits the brain. Three physical activity changes in, uh, in the structure of the brain from Trinity College Dublin when you exercise on a regular basis. Good information. But we're 16 minutes into our program. We have a lot to share. We're going to take a break, come back. I'm going to share commentary, and then we're going to go to three of the finest medical doctors and scientists in the world, outstanding reputations, who are saying that hydroxychloroquine works. They took strong umbrage with the doctor who said he couldn't find anything good to say about hydroxychloroquine, only bad stuff. And you realize the establishment is eating the establishment. Cannibalism, because of ideology. Inequality, as we all know, is reaching a point of no return. For many, it's already passed. When was the last time that anyone in the mainstream media, left or right, went out to the rest of the country, out of New York, out of Los Angeles, out of San Francisco, out of Chicago, and saw what it's like to be just an average working-class person, where you're working, but you're not making enough money, or there's no work for you for any amount of money, and yet you have bills and more bills, and your interest rates just keep going up. Even though you haven't used a credit card, the interest rate on that car goes up. The cost of lending money causes all, all of those uh, benefits to the lender. And who do you think the lenders are? You think the lenders of, of first resort are the banks or the Federal Reserve? No, they don't have the money. You have to understand how it works. The government can and does spend money that's not there from revenues. So on the one hand, you have your taxes, so the taxes are supposed to be able to bring in the trillions of dollars from which then all the other appropriations occur. The trouble is everything about that is wrong. It is already a 100 years old. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked in the last 50 years. 
I'll explain how in detail. So how then does the government get its money? Pools of investment capital come in. It's a sure win because it's based upon supply and demand. If there's a greater supply of money, then there's a lower interest rate on it. If there's a less supply of money, then there's a greater interest paid to borrow it. It's no different than cars. If you have an oversupply of cars, you're going to have discounts on those cars. If you have too many houses, you're going to have a discount on the houses. But what if everybody wants to move to a particular area, like the upper Hudson Valley right now, which some a beautiful area, by the way, but not sustainable. You're still in New York State, which is a big mistake. One of the four states I would suggest people move from, California being number one, everything is wrong in California, and none of it's going to go right. New York is number two, New Jersey is number three, and Pennsylvania is number four. And I've explained why in detail, why they're not sustainable on many different levels. But at some point, when we were getting a 73% average tax, and we had lots of money in our treasury, we could then build the great highway system in America, and our dams and levees, and uh, we could build in the infrastructures. We did everything from the 1940s through the 19, about 1975, and then it all ended, because there was a reason why it ended, and that's what we're going to share. I'm going to start with the thoughts of Robert Freeman. Quote, the reason everybody is so angst-ridden about the economy is because we have all the wrong idea about what it is supposed to do and how it's supposed to work. Most of us have a quaint 19th century idea about free markets and all that up-by-the-bootstraps Horatio Alder stuff. You know, work hard, play by the rules, keep your nose clean, and you'll do well. That is certainly the culture, the myth of our society that bays us in. But that's not how things actually work. It's the dissonance between how we imagine things work and how they really work that causes our perplexity and angst and rage. It is also that dissonance that has been so deftly manipulated by Donald Trump and given rise to Trumpism. Forty years ago, around 1980, the uber-wealthy decided they wanted to get their money out of the economy. There was too much political turmoil, Vietnam, Watergate, uh, too much economic turbulence, Arab oil embargoes, stagflation, and too high cost of production, high wages, environmental and labor protections. They wanted to take their money somewhere where they could pay people one-twentieth what they paid here, less than a dollar an hour, where there were no environmental or labor laws, where the workforce was plentiful, hungry, docile, and where politicians could be bought cheap. So they engineered a controlled demolition of the U.S. economy. The plan had two elements. In the first part, they began systematically deindustrializing what had been the mightiest economy in the history of the world. Tens of millions of white color or white working class factory workers were put out to work, losing their high paying jobs. 
forever. With nothing to replace them, major cities became hollowed-out hulks of a once-glorious industrial past, bywords for decline. Think Detroit, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, Buffalo, Toledo, and more. The data tell the story. In 1980, manufacturing accounted for about 22% of the U.S. economy. By 2012, just 30 years later, it contributed only 12%, an astonishing rapid decline in historical terms, effectively a controlled demolition. The U.S. trade deficit, where we buy more from other countries than we sell, went from $19 billion in 1980, pretty close to a rounding error, to what looks like to be $1 trillion deficit today. This, that is money that is sent directly out of the country to buy other countries' goods, $1 trillion. The second element of the controlled demolition of the economy was that the U.S. embarked on a plan to shift massive shares of U.S. income and wealth from the working and middle classes to the already wealthy. This is what was called supply-side economics. It was Ronald Reagan's signature economic policy, which he ran for president in 1980. The mythical story was that if we all gave more of our money to the already wealthy, they would invest it for us, and the resulting economic boom would more than pay back the transfer, even after taxes and inflation. It sounded too good to be true. It was. Taxes on the highest income brackets were lowered from 71% to 38%, essentially cut in half. Importantly, there was no requirement that the beneficiaries actually invest their newfound gains in the United States, so they didn't. They invested them in the those East Asian countries that were the beneficiaries of the deindustrialization discussed just now. What happened? In the first full year under Reagan's plan, the economy shrunk by 2.1%, the greatest shrinkage since the Great Depression. Factory workers were out of work, so they weren't paying taxes. And because the wealthy were paying so much fewer taxes, the government didn't have enough income to cover its expenses. It had to make up the difference by borrowing. That is what is called a budget deficit. Jimmy Carter's last budget deficit was $78 billion. Ronald Reagan's first full-year budget deficit after his supply-side tax cuts were $128 billion, a 64% increase. The next year, 1983, the deficit exploded again to $208 billion, another 63% increase. By 1992, when Reagan's Vice President George Bush finished office, the deficits were $300 billion. Of course, annual deficits accumulate into the national debt. When Reagan took office in 1981, the national debt, the accumulation of all of the annual deficits since the country began, was $1 trillion in our entire hundreds-of-year history. In 1993, just 12 years later, when George Bush left office, it was $4 trillion. Think about that, $4 trillion. Over 204 years, paying off the costs of the American Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Civil War, the building out of the entire continent, fighting World War I, surviving the Great Depression, fighting and winning World War II, and winning the better part of the Cold War, the country only had to borrow $1 trillion. $1 trillion. For all that, 
Then in the next 12 years of peace and prosperity, the debt quadrupled to $4 trillion. These deficits and this debt benefit the wealth, the very wealthy, because it is they who find them, fund them, who loan money to the government at interest that it has to borrow because it can't pay its bills from the taxes it's no longer bringing in. As with the deal industrialization of the economy, this was exactly the plan to benefit the wealthiest people in the world. Today, average working class wages adjusted for taxes and inflation are the same as they were in the 1970s. For stark comparison, average incomes in China are up by tenfold. Tenfold. This is why the United States has massive civil tension among its people and records and record distrust of the government, while the people of China are ferociously loyal to their government. The annual trade deficit, that money we ship out of the country to buy things we don't make anymore, is on track to exceed $1 trillion this year. That's $1 trillion taken straight off the top of what otherwise would be available national as national income, and, and we ship it abroad. The national debt has exploded beyond belief to over $27 trillion. This year's increment, the annual def, uh, budget deficit, will exceed $4 trillion. That's four times as much as was incurred in the first 204 years of the country combined. This is not a picture of economic vibrancy. In conclusion, for the past 40 years, the government has had to run average budget deficits of $675 billion a year just to keep the holes in the economy plugged. Otherwise, it would have fallen into recession or depression, and the borrowing is going vertical. This is a tremendous boon to the very wealthy because, as just mentioned, it is they who loan the government all that money, and importantly, they do so at higher interest rates because when anything is in higher demand, in this case, borrowed money, its prices go up. The price of borrowing money is the interest rate. But wait, it gets better or worse, depending upon whether you are the borrower or lender. Higher interest rates in one part of the economy mean higher rates in all the economy because the pool of loanable funds is essentially the same pool for all. That means that when budget deficits rise, the interest rates on mortgages, credit cards, automobiles, and student loans, anything bought on borrowed money, goes up too. This is a stealth way for the government to transfer still more money to the already wealthy, but with the appearance that it's an arm's-length private transaction between borrowers and lenders involving interest rates. So what's it all add up to? For the four decades between the 1940 and 1980, the share of national income that went up to the top 10% of income earners was remarkable stable, about 34%. That This includes those decades that are generally regarded as the golden age of capitalism. But in the four decades since 1980, the share of income to the top 10% has skyrocketed to 47% of breathtaking upward shift in national income to those who already are the richest. The upward distribution of wealth over the same period of time is even actually greater. It's a cliche, but like so many cliches, it is grounded in reality. The rich are getting richer and everyone else is getting poorer. 
That's exactly the plan. And the plan is working exactly as intended. In fact, it is accelerating at every new crisis because, well, and so you understand. Some additional thoughts on this. First and foremost, I would add the following. Things really began to change when you had green, you had a form of what was called insider, excuse me, not insider trading, but corporate takeovers and green mailing, where you would buy up a lot of stock in a company and then threaten to change the corporate structure or board of directors or its marketing, and then they give you a check and you go away. You've done nothing because you get your money back, and then that took off and a lot of people engaged in that. And then you buy up companies, not with the intent of making them better, but you sell off all their profitable parts, especially good work corporations that didn't have a lot of debt. And they did that. So before Reagan, you had a lot of corporate takeovers. And after that came the equity partners. The biggest scourge in the world today, economic, are equity partners. They're the people that sit on the boards of PBS uh, stations. They're the most powerful uh, people in the economy today. They deal with billions and hundreds of billions of dollars in cash that they can buy and use, borrow money even for that to buy, and look at all the companies, including Mitt Romney's, paying capital. That's how he got rich. You don't make a new factory. You don't hire people. What you do is you fire people, you sell factories, and what they've done is they've taken every brand uh, that they could buy, big names that we grew up, that were made in America, where the workers were almost all union workers. At one time, up to 50% of all workers in America were unions. They had collective bargaining. They were protected. And it's through those unions that we ended up getting better uh, better terms. Uh, for example, uh, sick pay and uh, vacation. Uh, cleaning up the environment where you worked. And then that spurred on Ralph Nader and others to work together with the unions uh, to get the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act. So all these hundreds of laws that were put into effect to protect people, we had. We didn't have credit cards. So the average American, if you remember, and think about this, you prided yourself not in the debt you accumulated, but in the money you've saved. People pride themselves in savings. Even as a kid, we were all given, I at least had a piggy bank. You know, you put pennies in it, nickels. And we were taught uh, to live within our means. And we did. And there was very little debt. Most people didn't have a mortgage. And you had a family structure. Everything today that was once valued because it worked is now attacked and shamed as if somehow uh, it shouldn't exist. And so when you ask the people in office, ask Trump, ask Biden, ask anyone in their administration, they're all from the same swamp. They just have different, uh, different loyalties. But none of these people that I've seen, and I study every one, just so you understand, I go into the background of every single appointment in, in every administration going clear back to Jimmy Carter. And what you see, there's not a single person that I could find that's just a regular person who represents the people. These are all connected to corporate interest. So if making, I'll just use this as an example, 
let's just say that you make a bicycle in the United States and the factory is up in Vermont and it's been there for a hundred years and it employs a hundred people and they all make a nice living wage, not a minimum wage, a living wage. They own their home. They have, they have savings. They're doing okay. Along come some people working with Wall Street or GE Capital or one of the others and they say, we're going to buy that company. And they're going to buy it and they're going to take the company and they've already worked on this and they go to China or India and they say, we want to employ X number of people here and we want you to pay for building us a factory. Okay, we can do it. By the way, in China today, they can build a skyscraper from beginning to end, from breaking ground to finished in 14 days. 14 days. It doesn't mean they're the best built, but it means that uh, they do it differently. Well, they, they, they have a communist government they can do that, unfortunately. <clears throat> but one of the reasons they have all these phantom cities in China is because they wanted people to work to have an income so they weren't rioting in the streets. Anyhow, so what happens is they now have, let's say it takes them three months, and now they have a factory. The factory is all operational. It's to make bikes. They then go in. They make their deal. They take over the company. They close down the factory. Those people are fired, and the next day they open up making bikes. Here's the problem. They're now going to make a bike that they can ship on container ships into the United States and retail the bike at less cost than what the previous company in Vermont could make it at cost. Well, how can you compete with someone whose, whose retail is less than your cost? You can't do it. And they did it with clothes, and they did it with refrigerators and washer and dryers and electronics. Next thing you know, we're no longer manufacturing. We're simply importing and using. How many people? We've looked high and low, and I spent five years trying to find the correct figures. The best that we can come is about 35 million Americans were sabotaged by Democrat and Republican. The worst of the worst, the Clintons. But, but the, the Reagan administration was equally up to it because he legitimated, and now Sean Hannity, everyone else, praises him for what he did. What exactly did he do? I invite you, Sean, to come on my show and debate me based upon how good was Reaganomics. It was a disaster. And do you ever have anyone on your show, you know, you the man who goes to Wall Street, you the man that wants to eat the hamburger with your buddy on the street? Yeah, that's all good. Take a look at the consequences. When you look at, with real scholarship, you'll see that every administration, no exceptions, Obama included, they were... They virtually gutted the working class in America. Now, that's up to this point. So now you're living off your credit cards. You're living off borrowed money. And they keep increasing the debt on that. So everyone, like a payday loan, which should all be shut down, and banks, <clears throat> they're all making enormous money. Even the government, which owns 40% of the student debt, all that should be forgiven. All of the interest on the debt should be forgiven. So people have a chance of not living in debt peonage. And student debt in its entirety at public schools, not private. You just choose to go to a private school on you, buddy. No one else. You didn't have to go to Harvard or Yale. You could have gone to a state university and got the same quality education. But if you go to a state school, 
you should be forgiven all student debt, in my opinion, because everything that goes wrong in that inside the Wall Street and inside of the uh, inside of the Washington Beltway, whatever mistakes they made, they're immediately compensated for. You and I never. So just a thought. Now we're going to go to the testimony from the Senate hearing just, I think it was a week ago. No news about this anywhere. Dr. McCullough is the current vice chair of internal medicine at Baylor University Medical Center and a professor of medicine at Texas A&M College of Medicine. Dr. McCullough received his MD from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School and his MPH from the University of Michigan. <clears throat> Dr. McCullough is board certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine in the areas of internal medicine and cardiovascular disease. He specializes in the treatment of patients with complicated internal medical problems and have major affected major organs, including the heart and the kidneys. Dr. McCullough. Thank you, Chairman Johnson, Ranking Member Peter, and members of the committee for allowing me uh, to talk to you today about the critical need for early ambulatory treatment for COVID-19 as an emergency measure in the middle of this national crisis. As we sit here today, uh, we have a, the greatest mass of infected Americans uh, that we've ever had since the start of the pandemic. And Americans are pouring into hospitals untreated. The hospital census is already at, at capacity. A national calamity of un imaginable mortality is right around the corner. In a matter of weeks, weeks to months, Americans are going to be horrified with what they see on the news with respect to a hospital overrun, uh, mortality skyrocketing for both COVID and non-COVID uh, complications and conditions, and, uh, and patients uh, further infecting other Americans as this pandemic spirals out of control. My viewpoint uh, and my views expressed here are those of my own and not necessarily my institutions. My viewpoint is this pandemic should have always been viewed as having four pillars, if we can bring up the figure. The first pillar is contagion control. We have had probably the vast majority of government efforts solely focused on contagion control. The entire media representation of what the government has been doing has been on contagion control. Well, we, as we see it here today, it's obvious contagion control has not solved the problem. The second pillar is early ambulatory treatment. This virus uh, infects individuals and they sit at home for two weeks. We have a two week opportunity to treat this problem and we hear nothing about it. We hear nothing about early ambulatory treatment. There's no updates. There's no viewpoint to Americans of what's going on outside of the United States where early ambulatory treatment is a standard of care in countries that are doing much better than the United States. It's grossly overlooked. The third pillar is the hospitals, and I've already told you, they're overrun. We're doing all the best technologies we possibly can in the hospital, but the hospital's an inadequate safety net. The current hospital mortality rate's about 5 to 7%. When patients get in the ICU, it's 25%, and virtually all the COVID deaths that occur, occur in the hospital. It's obviously not a, an adequate safety net for Americans. The fourth pillar is vaccination. Vaccination should bring out the close to the pandemic, but this hearing is about early ambulatory treatment. If we can bring up the next figure. We've learned a lot about the virus. There've been over 75,000 peer-reviewed publications in PubMed since the onset of the pandemic. Information is flowing in at about 500 papers a day. So any expert who claims that a review of data and studies is contemporary, they're quickly out of date. 
And I can tell you with this pandemic uh, and this virus, what we've learned is that there's an early viral replication phase uh, followed by a destructive immune activation called cytokine storm and then blood clotting thrombosis. And what doctors have done is they've innovated and they've uh, uh, identified both in the hospital and outside of the hospital, aided by clinical trials and observational studies, an approach that involves combination antivirals followed by corticosteroids and antithrombotic agents. Doctors in the outpatient communities faced with thousands of patients calling and begging for help have innovated. Dr. Zelenko is one in New York in the middle of the uh, calamity in New York who was an early innovator. I summarized uh, these and published them in the American Journal of Medicine, uh, uh, the synthesis of the principles of randomized trials and observational studies. Uh, and this uh, uh, algorithm has been updated multiple times uh, and, and provides a framework for new drugs and agents to be incorporated in an early ambulatory treatment approach. I've reviewed every report from real-world data from American doctors who have innovated and faced this problem. And I can tell you that they are achieving rates of hospitalization and death less than 3% for high-risk Americans over 50 with multiple conditions. Most doctors can achieve less than 1%. With no treatment in the United States right now, an individual over 50 with medical problems faces a 7% rate of hospitalization and death. Someone in their 80s, that skyrockets to 40%. I can tell you as a doctor, I have always treated high-risk patients with the best tools available. And I looked at all the evidence. When it was obvious that AIDS drugs didn't work, I didn't use them. But hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, if I had favipiravir, I'd combine it with other drugs. And then steroids. That should be non-controversial. Doctors should be using corticosteroids in patients. What doctor would not help a patient who's at risk for a catastrophic stroke that occurs as a complication of this condition? So I can tell you right now, I'm not asking for permission to do this, but I'm asking for your help. I'm asking for the government to organize all government agencies that are related to this to assist doctors rapidly with their innovation and their compassionate care of patients with COVID-19 at home because we can present, prevent hospitalization and death. And right now, it's the only option on the table. Thank you. Our next witness is Dr. Harvey Risch. Dr. Risch is a professor of epidemiology in the Department of Epidemiology at the Public Health and Public Health at the Yale School of Public Health and the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Risch received his MD from the University of California, San Diego, and his PhD in biomathematics from the University of Chicago. He's the author of more than 325 original research publications and is a member of the Connecticut Academy of Sciences and Engineering. This year, Dr. Risch researched the efficacy of seven outpatient medications for the treatment of high-risk COVID-19 patients in 42 hospitals across Brazil. Dr. Risch. Uh, senators and colleagues, thank you very much for convening this hearing. We all understand the endemic disease that we are facing and that we have to face head-on and not hide from it, hoping it, that it will go away. And so I'm going to give you my perspective on this. In May of this year, I observed that results of studies of, of a drug suggested to treat COVID, hydroxychloroquine, were being misrepresented, but what I thought at the time was sloppy reporting. We've heard from Dr. McCullough how COVID disease progresses in phases, from viral replication to florid pneumonia to multi-organ attack. Viral replication is an outpatient condition, but the pneumonia that fills the lungs with immune system debris and is life-threatening is hospitalizable. We've also heard how each phase, each pathologic aspect of the disease has to have its own specific treatment, how those treatments are derived from the biologic mechanisms of the disease. 
Thus, I was fra fra frankly astounded that the studies of hospital treatments were being represented as applying to outpatients in violation of what I had learned and how to treat patients in medical school. We're now finally coming to address why over the last six months, our government research institutions have invested billions of dollars in expensive patent medications and vaccine development, but almost nothing in outpatient, early outpatient treatments, the first line of response to, to this pandemic. And it's not that we've lacked candidate medications to study, we've had a number of promising agents. But I think that the early on conflation of hospital with outpatient disease served to imply that treatments of outpatient disease had been studied and found ineffective. This illogical premise motivated me to look at what actually the evidence for outpatient disease and its treatment were. So I want to reiterate that we are considering the evidence for early treatment of high-risk outpatients to prevent hospitalization and mortality. And that's it. I'm not talking about inpatient disease. That's a totally different consideration. I'm talking only about outpatient disease. So this is treatment starting in the first five days or so after the onset of symptoms. Treatment of older patients or patients with chronic conditions like diabetes or obesity, heart diseases, lung diseases, kidney diseases, immune system diseases, survivors from cancer, and so on. These are the people who are most likely to die from COVID and they are the people most in need of prevention, protection. So I, in doing my research, I sought to obtain reports of every study of every medication pertaining to early treatment of high-risk outpatients. I monitor the literature daily, which is a task. And what I have found is actually remarkable. What I've observed is that while the positive reports of a number of drugs, every study of the outpatient use of one particular drug, hydroxychloroquine, with or without accompanying agents, has shown substantial benefit in reducing risks of hospitalization and mortality. Now, these studies break down into two major types. The first is the double-blinded, double randomized controlled trials that various government and scientific personalities say provide the strongest, supposedly the only trustworthy form of evidence. The second is non-randomized but still controlled trials. There's some truth in that assertion about the nature of the quality of the evidence, but there's also much falsehood. We know, for example, that the great majority of drugs used to treat heart diseases were established before randomized controlled trials with non-randomized trials. Cholesterol-lowering drugs were in widespread use before randomized trials were ever done. Azithromycin, which is the most common antibiotic used in children, was, used, was not established by randomized controlled trials. The great majority of drugs that are in use today all were not established when they went into widespread use with randomized trials. Many of them had randomized trials later, but the, the establishment and use of drugs is not always done on the basis of randomized trials, but on the study with other kinds of studies. And thus, the idea that only randomized trials provide trustworthy evidence is a simplistic notion that sounds good in theory, and perhaps Dr. Zha later may tell you that it's what many doctors believe, but this idea does not stand up to the body of medical studies and data that addresses it. And in fact, we have large amounts of empirical data looking at the difference between non-randomized and randomized style trials. 
Dr. Tom Frieden, who was previously the, the director of the Centers for Disease Control, in 2017 wrote an extensive essay in the New England Journal of Medicine showing that non-randomized trials and randomized trials provide equivalent compelling evidence, equivalent evidence for the efficacy of, of treatments. So could you please enter the Frieden article into the record? Underlying this was a gigantic meta-analysis of meta-analyses, what I call a mega-analysis, done by the Cochrane Library Consortium, which is a British organization organized to, formed to organize evidence-based medical research. The Cochrane investigators examined what involved tens of thousands of study comparisons. This is a gigantic amount of, of data between randomized trials and their corresponding non-randomized counterparts. And when they compared these two kinds of studies, they found that they arrived at virtually identical conclusions. And please enter the, the Engelmeyer uh, study also into the record. This evidence is why well-performed non-randomized trials are every bit as much of a gold standard today as the randomized trials you've heard of. This is empirical data, not opinions. This is empirical data. So what did I find when I investigated hydroxychloroquine in early use among outpatients? Right. The first thing is that this drug is extremely safe, exceedingly safe. We know this from common sense. This is a medication that's been used for 65 years by hundreds of millions of people in tens of billions of doses worldwide, prescribed without routine electrocardiogram screening. It's given to adults, to children, pregnant women, nursing mothers, such a drug must be safe, and it must be safe when used in the initial viral replication phase of this illness, which is in fact, in outpatients, initially similar to a cold or flu. And so, could you please put the Oxford, the Lane paper, and its supplement? For those of you listening from WBAI, our sister station, we have to let you go now. And for everyone else, go to prn.fm. We'll continue because this gets really interesting. Into, into the record. This is a paper showing the, of more than 900,000 hydroxychloroquine users that showed no excess mortality and no increased cardiac arrhythmias. And also, please put into the record my article from the American Journal of Epidemiology where I discussed the Lane paper. So in spite of the safety, surprisingly, in July, the FDA posted a warning against outpatient hydroxychloroquine use on its website, and at the, they did this while at the same time the FDA actually had no systematic evidence of adverse events in outpatients, and the website itself says that it justifies the warning based on evidence that it had in hospital patients. It justified it for use in, in outpatients, which is what I said before was invalid. There are now seven studies of early use of hydroxychloroquine in high-risk outpatients. And every one of these studies has shown significant benefit. This includes 636 outpatients, Sao Paulo, Brazil, 199 clinic patients in Marseille, France, 717 patients in a large HMO network in Brazil, 226 nursing home patients in Marseille, more than 1,200 outpatients in New Jersey, 100 long-term care institution patients in Andorra, and almost 8,000 patients across the entire country of Saudi Arabia. All of these studies showed about a 50% or greater reduction in risk of hospitalization or death. And in fact, the Saudi study was, as I said, a national study, and it demonstrated a five-fold reduction in mortality for hydroxychloroquine plus zinc. The two of them used together 
versus zinc and standard of care alone. And none of these studies have shown a single fatal cardiac arrhythmia among the thousands of patients that were treated in these studies with, that was attributable to hydroxychloroquine. And in fact, in addition to this, there have been six outpatient randomized control trials. We've heard a lot about this. These trials individually were, were small and incomplete and were stopped early, but together, when analyzed together, as we did, they show a statistically significant reduction in risk, and that's what matters. So that's the LADAPO paper, if that could be entered into the record also. So this body of evidence for hydroxychloroquine dramatically outweighs the risk-benefit ratio for remdesivir, for monoclonal antibodies, and for the difficult-to-use BEM-lanivimab that FDA has approved for emergency use authorizations while denying the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. This is an egregious double standard that FDA did on hydroxychloroquine that needs to be overturned immediately and its emergency use authorization application approved. I'm restating that every outpatient study of hydroxychloroquine has shown benefit. There are no studies, as far as I know of as of last night, that are of high-risk use in outpatients that do not show benefit at all. So now we've spent the last six months with formal government policies and warnings against outpatient treatment. The government has invested large, very large amounts in vaccines and expensive new treatments, which have yet to be proven, while there's been almost no support for evaluating inexpensive but useful medications. A quarter of a million Americans have died from this mismanaged approach. And even if we find that the vaccines eventually work effectively and safely, as we all hope, myself included, people will still get sick and die, and early outpatient treatment is still and will be continuing an essential part of ending this pandemic. Thank you very much. Our next uh, witness is Dr. George Fareed. Dr. Fareed is a family med medicine specialist in Brawley, California, with over 50 years of experience in the medical field. He graduated with honors from Harvard Medical School in 1970. After two decades of teaching and researching in academia, he returned to clinical medicine and established a general practice. Dr. Fareed is currently the medical director and family medicine specialist at Pioneers Medical Center in the Imperial Valley. In the past few months, Dr. Fareed has treated countless uh, COVID-19 patients, both outpatient and inpatient. Dr. Fareed. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, senators and colleagues. Okay, we're, you will be able to hear Dr. Fareed. He is very powerful in his presentation. Mind you, they're all testifying under oath. When you go to the archives, because we're out of time, but that last five-minute segment will be there for you. All right? And we have posted the entire two-hour uh, Senate hearing on our website. And you can hear also the person that is anti-hydroxychloroquine uh, and then the response of these people. And this is where the establishment is fighting the establishment. Interesting to watch. But the scientific evidence, the peer-reviewed literature, the clinical experience, the empirical data is all on the side of hydroxychloroquine as outpatient usage, proper dose, and it has saved lives. How many lives? No one knows how many would have been saved had we continued using this as we started off using it, but I'm guesstimating about half of the people would be alive today who otherwise have passed. That's the cost of politics when you weaponize a situation like COVID has been weaponized. Tonight on the Progressive Commentary Hour, we will have a whole hour on the COVID pandemic narrative. What can we believe from 
a professor, Sugaret Bakadi, uh, an American-born physician trained in Germany. He's been the medical field for 50 years, uh, and he's an MD, PhD. He was a prestigious scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Immunology and Epigenetics, and then became a professor at the Institute of Medical Microbiology at uh, Gresden University. He's published many articles in peer-reviewed literature. So he and his wife, who's also an oncolo in the oncology uh, research, uh, have finally come forward to tell the truth. And he's very straight about it. 7 o'clock, PRN.FM. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day.